Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. I want to start off today's podcast by encouraging my audience to listen to another podcast that I recorded a couple of days ago with Liz Clayman. And the name of her podcast is Everyone Talks to Liz. And you can listen to it, I guess, anywhere that there are podcasts, wherever you're listening to my podcast, you can just search for Liz Clayman and you'll see Everyone Talks to Liz, or you can find the website. Liz Clayman is an anchor on Fox Business. And there's a couple of reasons why I really want to encourage everybody who's listening to my podcast to go and listen to, to this podcast. Is first of all, it was a very unique kind of interview that I did with Liz. It was more of a personal interview of kind of my history growing up, my dad. I mean, if you don't know, Liz and I went to high school together, so I've known her for almost 40 years. Uh, so I think that if you listen to the interview, you'll probably hear some things or learn some things that I don't typically talk about on this podcast or in other interviews. So it's definitely worth a listen. Uh, but also, you know, I'd like to really uh, drive up the view count for this particular podcast. You know, Fox Business is one of the only networks or maybe the only network really that still has me on in the mainstream. I used to be on a lot of the cable news networks years and years ago, uh, but pretty much the last couple of years, it's really only been Fox Business and predominantly Liz, and that's because we're friends, and so she kind of pushes to have me on. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to kind of show Fox the, the benefits of having me on because they can see the type of audience 
that I can bring to their programming. And so they watch all these podcasts. And so if they see that everyone talks to Liz, she does a podcast with me and then her numbers are off the charts because we set a record for the number of people who actually listen to the podcast. That may send a message to their ratings hungry producers that they need to have Peter Schiff on uh, Fox Business and maybe even Fox News. It's been years and years since I was actually on Fox News. You know, I'm on, you know, their sister company, Fox Business, which is a much smaller one. Now, I did tape, by the way, I did tape finally uh, the episode I mentioned with Tucker Carlson. They still haven't aired it. So hopefully they will. But, you know, it's been a while and, you know, I'm starting to get a little worried. Maybe they'll think the interview is too stale and they won't run it. But I want to show the people over there that I have an audience, you know, that I have something to bring to the table to the extent that they have me on. Well, maybe more people will actually watch the shows because I'm there. I mean, I think I am a pretty entertaining guest and I know I'm good for ratings, even if it's not my own fans who are tuning in. But for now, I think that if you go and listen to this interview that I did, you'll enjoy the interview, but we'll also be showing the people at Fox that if you have Peter Schiff on your programs, you can get a much bigger audience. And that's what it's all about. It's about ratings and selling advertisement. So if they know that Peter Schiff is good for ratings, well, then maybe they'll have Peter Schiff on a little bit more often. But right off the bat, let's start talking about gold and the bull market continuing in the price of gold. We traded above $1,620 an ounce today. It looks like right now, as I'm recording this, a little after the close of the U.S. Stock Exchange, we're up about 8 bucks at $1,619. The U.S. dollar uh, was a bit stronger again today. The dollar index closed at 99 spot 89 so almost all the way back to 100 part of that was driven by some positive or better than expected economic numbers that came out earlier this morning philly fed came out much stronger than expected as did the leading economic indicators but again the whole you know coronavirus and all of the concerns surrounding that have been working to the dollar's advantage in that more of the aggressive monetary easing in response to the virus has been taking place outside the United States. And so that has been benefiting the dollar. But as I've been saying, it's been benefiting gold even more. So even though we're at a new seven-year high in the price of gold in dollars, we are hitting record high after record high in terms of other currencies. So that means that people in just about every country in the world when they are looking at the price of gold in their own currency, they are seeing prices that have, where gold has never traded in history. It keeps making new all-time record highs, which obviously is a very, very powerful signal that they should be buying gold because gold is measuring the loss of purchasing power of their currencies. Currencies are losing value, and that loss of value is reflected in the rising price of gold. And of course, that is by design. All of these global central banks are telling their citizens that they want their currency to lose value, and that's exactly what's happening. But of course, if your central bank is telling you that they want your currency to lose value, then why hold on to it? Why not convert it into gold and avoid that loss of value? In fact, yesterday I was watching actually on CNBC and I heard this call 
for the first time. Watch it on CNBC. But Citibank, right, which is a big mainstream bank, right, their analyst came out and said that he thinks the price of gold is going to hit $2,000 an ounce in the next 12 to 24 months. Now, that is not that long a time horizon. I mean, 12 months, that's a year. So if you think gold is going to go up to $2,000 an ounce in potentially the next year, and if not over the next two years, that is a very big call for a mainstream bank. I mean, it's one thing if Peter Schiff goes on and says gold's going to go to 2000 I mean, no one's going to care about that, right? They're just going to dismiss that. But if you get City coming out and saying we think gold is going to $2,000 in a year, maybe two, you know, that's a 25% move. We're at $1,600 now. That's $400 higher. That's 25% in a year. That is a big return for just holding on to gold bullion for a relatively conservative asset like gold to get a 25% return in one to two years, that should be big news. But CNBC just completely dismissed it out of hand. I mean, I really couldn't believe it. I forget the name of the anchor who read the story and he had another guest on, I forget who that was. But after you know he reads the story and he says, hey, you know, what do you think of this call by City for $2,000 gold? And they're discussing it. And then the anchor basically says, you know, when you think about it, that's really not that big a deal. I mean, $2,000 is not that much higher than the current price of gold. I mean, so what's, you know, it's a no big deal. I mean, $2,000 gold, who cares? It's irrelevant. The gain from $1,600 to $2,000 is too small for investors to even care, as if this is a non-event. It doesn't even matter if the price of gold goes from 1600 to 2000 in the next year or two. I mean, first of all, if the price of gold is going up that much, there's a good chance that it does matter. There's a good chance it's going up because there are problems in the economy, because there's inflation, or because you know there's some other economic problem or the market is going down. So for the CNBC audience, which is being constantly encouraged to buy into the market, to totally dismiss uh, a potential $2,000 gold target by a major bank as being irrelevant and too small to even be significant, that says a lot about how little these anchors on CNBC actually know about the markets and what it might mean for the price of gold to go that high. Because, you know, the gold could be inversely correlated to the stock market. But more important than that, 25% 25% gain in one year or two years, that's not a small return. I mean, that's not something to be dismissed as, oh, that's too small as to not to be of any concern. I mean, 25%, that's not a large enough gain for investors to, to even consider the potential or think about buying gold. I mean, come on. I mean, the, the yield on a two-year treasury is just 1.4%. That's it, 1.4% per year. So over two years, you're going to make 2.8%. If you're going to make 25% by owning gold, then why would anybody own treasuries? I mean, just sell your treasuries and buy an ounce of gold. I mean, that's pretty significant. If you could take make 10 times the gain 
on owning an ounce of gold than having the equivalent amount of money in a two-year treasury note, that's significant. I mean, how could you dismiss that? I mean, look at the yield on the S&P 500. The yield on the S&P 500 is only 1.7%. So after two years, what do you make? 3.4% versus making 25% in gold in the next year or two. Now, I know stocks could go up, but are they going to go up that much? I mean, that's a big return, especially when the market is already so overvalued. I mean, earnings are falling. Valuations are extremely stretched. I mean, you know that you are in a massive mania, a massive bubble, when a 25% gain on something as conservative as gold bullion, right? 25% over one to two years, if that return is so small as to be of no interest to investors, because they could just make so much more money buying the stock market, that's another indication of just how big this equity bubble is and how little uh, the anchors on CNBC really understand about the markets. And, you know, as a gold bull, I mean, all of this is music to my ears. I mean, the more I see the mainstream uh, media dismissing the significance of the move up in gold, discouraging their audience from buying gold or even looking at gold stocks, I mean, uh, the more I like it. In fact, I remember back in the day when CNBC used to have me on, every time gold made a big move up, they would call me to come on and talk about it. And a lot of times it would be a contrarian indicator because, you know, by the time gold made a big enough move for them to invite me on, it would be time for a pullback. So the minute you saw me on CNBC talking about gold, right, well, it, you could take profits. You know, because they usually didn't want to call me when the price was down. I mean, which they could have done just to just to rub it in, right? But it, they would call me when it was in the news, and it was only kind of in news uh, when it was going up. And so I would kind of mark the short-term top. But now that they never call me on, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe the market's never going to pull back. Cause they're never going to have Peter Schiff on to talk about the rise, so the rise can continue. Uh, you know, without uh, me coming up and you know. Uh, putting a, a, a stop to it. And not only are they just ignoring the rising price of gold, what they are doing is they continue to give a tremendous amount of coverage to Bitcoin instead of gold, right? So instead of talking about gold, they just talk about Bitcoin. In fact, I was watching an interview from Fast Money, which was one of the shows that I used to be on quite often but I haven't been on it in two, three years, right, when they, they stopped having me on. But there was an interview with Mark Yusko, who is at Morgan Creek Capital, which manages a lot of crypto assets. And he had a seven-minute segment on Fast Money, which is a lot of time to devote to one guest. I mean, I know. I mean, it's hard to get that much time on one of these shows. And he was there, and there was also a few other guys, uh, Tim Seymour, Guy Adami, some other guys that, that I've been on with were up there. Uh, but it was mostly uh, Brian Sullivan who had this conversation with Mark. And all of it is about Bitcoin, you know, and why everybody should buy Bitcoin. And this guy is like pounding the table on Bitcoin. You got to buy it. You got to buy it. It's going way, way up. And, you know, there's really no pushback. He's making all kinds of asinine, pie-in-the-sky uh, forecasts about how high uh, Bitcoin is going to go. And the interesting thing is the argument that he is making for Bitcoin is the exact argument that you would make for gold. I mean, what he's saying is that 
Uh, interest rates are artificially low. He said the Fed was going to bring rates to zero, that other central banks were going to be bringing their rates to uh, zero, that it was a fiat fiasco, that currencies were going to be destroyed, fiat currencies, that there's going to be massive inflation, and that people need to get out of the fiat-based system. They need to find a hedge against what these central banks are doing. This is going to be a disaster, hyperinflation. And so what they need to do is to buy Bitcoin. Now, he's correct in what the central banks are going to do, and he's correct that people should be looking to get out of fiat currencies, but he's wrong on saying that they should buy Bitcoin. They should be buying gold. If you're really worried about all the things that Mark Yusko says that you should be worried about, and I agree with him, these are a major concern, the solution is not to buy fiat cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, but to buy real money, a real asset like gold. But the interesting part about this whole thing is that if I was still on CNBC, if they let me on and I was saying the same stuff about central banks and the Fed and massive inflation, they would all be arguing with me. They would be trying to say that I'm wrong, that that's not going to happen, that that's a crazy view, right, that I've got it wrong, that I've been saying that for years, you know, but none of that happens to this guy. He can say all the gloom and doom uh, things that he wants, right? Totally outside the mainstream, the opposite of what everybody else says who comes on CNBC, who's touting stocks and bonds. He can say all these central bankers are making mistakes. They've all got it wrong. They're destroying the currencies. We're going to have massive inflation. The dollar is going to collapse. These other currencies are going to collapse. And he gets away with it. But not only is he not challenged on uh, the validity of his forecast, but these guys aren't even questioning his partiality like they, they do with me. I mean, not everybody does it, but a lot of guys on CNBC have accused me of basically lying, of talking my book. They'll say, Peter, you're only saying these ridiculous things. You couldn't possibly believe this. You're just trying to sell gold, right? You're just coming on here trying to get people to buy gold, even though, you know, I'm trying to get people to invest in a lot of things, not just gold, but yes, I talked about gold because nobody else was, and I think people should own it. And by the way, it's up better than 60% in the last four years. It's up 6.5% so far this year. It's beating the stock market. So why shouldn't people own gold? But I've always been accused of, well, you're just trying to get people to buy gold so you can make a sale because you're selling gold. So you're saying all this stuff just to convince people to buy gold. Well, why don't they say that to the Bitcoin guys? Why didn't anybody on Fast Money say, hey, Mark Yusoko, don't you manage crypto funds? Aren't you just trying to sell crypto? Don't you have a vested interest in people buying Bitcoin? Isn't that why you're on here saying all this stuff, right? Don't you need it to go up? Because in the case of this guy, it's actually a true thing. Because first of all, when it comes to gold, no matter what I say, I can't affect the price of gold. I can go on CNBC every day and say, buy gold, buy gold, and it's going to have no effect on the price. It is a huge liquid market. Nothing that I could do could influence the price. But you go on CNBC and you say, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, it's going way up. That actually can influence the market. It's a thin enough market that that type of media coverage touting it can actually make the price of Bitcoin go up. 
But of course, when you're involved in Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin, and I've, you know, I use the word Ponzi scheme sometimes to describe it, but what it's really more like is a pyramid scheme than a Ponzi scheme. And the difference between a pyramid and a Ponzi scheme, because they're subtle, a Ponzi scheme is when you have one guy, right, that's, that's perpetuating a fraud. Right? It's a, he's selling the thing and, and he knows it's a scam, but he doesn't tell the investors. But in a pyramid scheme, it's not just one guy. It's everybody who buys it, who buys into it, uh, makes money by convincing others to buy it too so that they can sell what they bought at a higher price. So there's no one person that is just scamming everybody Ponzi style. It basically takes on the dynamic of a pyramid. But when you are involved in a pyramid, yes, you've got to get on television if you can and convince people to buy what you already own so the price will go up. I never have to do that with the price of gold. I mean, the price of gold has real demand out there. It doesn't matter if I get anybody to buy it or not. It's going to be bought. It's going to be bought uh, by central banks as a reserve asset. It's going to be bought by the jewelry industry. It's going to be bought in aerospace and medicine and consumer electronics. People are going to buy gold regardless of what I say. That's not true for Bitcoin. You've got to get people out there pumping it, trying to convince people that the price is going to go up so they'll buy it. But meanwhile, when you get this guy coming on CNBC and he's saying all this stuff, nobody challenges him. Nobody pushes back the way they would if it were me and I was saying the exact same things except I was saying you should buy gold. But this guy can say all the things that I used to say about why you should buy gold, but apply it to Bitcoin and he gets nothing but respect, right? Everybody's, oh, okay, right? But meanwhile, Bitcoin is a complete scam as far as uh, being a, a store of value or a safe haven or any type of monetary asset. There should be a lot more skepticism when you are interviewing a guy promoting Bitcoin than a guy like me who's simply telling people to buy gold. And in fact, one of the things that, that this guy said is that he was encouraging people not only to buy Bitcoin. He said, go out and buy some Bitcoin, keep stacking Satoshis, just buy it, buy it, buy it. But then he said, take some of your Bitcoin and send it into my fund and I'll pay you an 8% interest on your Bitcoin. Now, how the hell can you pay anybody 8% interest on Bitcoin? I mean, obviously, what you're making Bitcoin denominated loans. I mean, how are you paying 8%? Banks aren't even paying 1%, and you're going to pay an 8% interest on a Bitcoin deposit? Obviously, that is a massive red flag. They're taking some tremendous risk with those Bitcoins if they can give you an 8% return for simply depositing them in their fund. I mean, maybe they're running some kind of Ponzi scheme with those Bitcoins. So it's basically a pyramid and a Ponzi rolled into one. Now, I don't know, I have no idea, but when anybody promises 8% yield on a deposit, you know that they have to take a lot of risk, especially in a low rate environment to pay that kind of yield. So who knows, but he's able to tout that too. And again, nobody questions him, no pushback. He just has the seven minutes to tout uh, Bitcoin, but no coverage at all really to what's happening with the price of gold. No, that's, that's happening in, in, in complete darkness why they have all this light shining on Bitcoin. You know, with all of the free and constant publicity that CNBC has been giving 
to Bitcoin, it's amazing that the price isn't even higher. I mean, that shows you how many people are dumping their Bitcoin behind the scenes. They're using CNBC as a way to get out, right? They're pumping and dumping. CNBC does the pumping and the whales do the dumping. In fact, one of the things this guy was talking about as this big catalyst for why the price of Bitcoin is gonna go way up is the halving. And if you don't know what the halving is, uh, it's going to happen, I think, May 12th, or maybe that's not the exact date. I'm trying to remember. But what happens is the reward for mining gets cut in half. So that means the miners aren't going to get as much Bitcoin for mining. And so therefore, the supply of Bitcoins after the halving is going to grow more slowly than it has been growing. And every four years, they, they have it again. And so the last time uh, there was a halving. I guess there was a big rally at some point after it. And so what everybody's been saying is, oh, the next time we have a halving, the price of Bitcoin is going to skyrocket because there's going to be less supply. First of all, there's not going to be less supply. There's going to be more supply. The only thing that's going to change is the supply will grow more slowly after the halving than it was before the halving. But the supply is still going to get bigger, not smaller. But the key is what happens to demand. Because what if demand goes down? Well, then the price can plunge. Everybody's just assuming that there's going to be some kind of supply shock after the halving. And everybody's been loading up on Bitcoin in advance of the halving because they all want to own it when it halves because everybody expects the price to surge. Except there's the problem. If everybody knows that the halving is coming and everybody is convinced that after the halving, the price is going to go way up, well, nobody is going to wait to buy after the halving. They're going to buy now. They want to be loaded up. They want to already own their Bitcoin so that they can own it when it goes up after the halving, which means once we get the halving, you don't have a bunch of people looking to buy. You have a bunch of people who already bought looking to sell. It's a classic buy the rumor, sell the fact. So everybody who thinks the halving is going to be a huge catalyst for the price going up, they're dead wrong. It's gonna be a catalyst for the price going down. In fact, the price will probably start going down before the halving and then go down even more after the halving because everybody who wants to buy because of the halving, well, they've already bought. And so really it's gonna be an opportunity for people to sell and cash in on the event that they've been anticipating uh, for such a long time. Meanwhile, though, I wanna circle back to the $2,000 city forecast uh, for the price of gold, because I can't really you know, emphasize how big a call this is and what this likely means, because these institutions realize what's going to happen. And for all the people talking about all the institutional money that's moving into Bitcoin, no institutional money is, in fact, moving into Bitcoin, but money is moving into gold. Look at the ETFs now have a record uh, amount of gold in storage. So there has been some big buying. And obviously, if these banks are starting to increase their price targets for the price of gold, they're accumulating for their own accounts and they're also accumulating gold stocks. That's probably why you haven't seen uh, a major push yet from the larger uh, gold uh, uh, banks uh, to recommend gold stocks because they want to buy them themselves. They don't want to recommend them to their clients until they've loaded up on their own position. So I do think that as uh, institutions start to appreciate uh, this bull market, 
once they have positioned themselves to profit from it, then they'll let their clients in on the action, right? They'll let them get a little taste once they've saturated their own appetites. But see, I want my clients in now. I don't want to wait for that. I mean, I've been encouraging people for years uh, to front run the big institutions, to buy gold, to buy these gold stocks. In fact, the more I think about it too, I mean, gold itself is the perfect hedge for people that are in the stock market. You know, and very few people who are in the stock market have any hedges. They might as well introduce gold because the reason it's such a great hedge is number one, if the market crashes, Gold's going up. I mean, just look at it. On a, look at the correlation. I mean, anytime you see the market going down, chances are, if you just look at the stock market, and if the stock market is down, especially if it's down big, you could pretty much guess that gold is up, right? Because it generally goes up when the stock market goes down. But it also can go up if the stock market goes up. So if the stock market's going to crash, which is something you should be concerned about if you got a lot of money in the stock market, gold's going to go way up if the stock market crashes. So you should have some gold as an insurance policy. So you have something that will go up when the rest of your portfolio goes down. But here's the flip side. The only way to stop the stock market from crashing is for the central bank or the Federal Reserve here to print more money, cut rates, do QE, and that is actually better for gold than the stock market going down. In fact, that is more bullish for gold than it is for stocks. So one or two things are gonna happen. The US stock market is going way down and your gold's gonna go up, or the Fed's gonna print so much money to prevent the US stock market from going down that the US stock market will go up. But under that scenario, your gold will go up even more. So it should make money either way. Stocks go down, you make money in gold. Stocks go up, you make more money in gold. So everybody should have it, and soon everybody will. But before they do, you need to load up. And again, physical gold, buy some, you know, shift gold is by gold company. We will get you the best gold at the lowest markup. You know, go to our website. And if you want to take a little bit more risk for a little more upside, buy some silver, physical silver. We have yet to make a big move. Look, we're going to have an explosive move one of these days. It'll be up $2, $3, $5 in one day. Don't wait for that day. A lot of people will, and they'll buy after that day. Buy before it because we know it's coming. You know, we're going to see gold up $100, $200 in one day. Don't buy it after that happens. Buy it before that happens. And, you know, I've said, I mentioned before, another way to get a little gold is buy some Monet jewelry, buy it for yourself, buy it for your wife or your girlfriend or your fiance. You know, when I first started talking to people about Monet jewelry, gold was about $1,200 an ounce. It's now over 1,600. So anybody who bought some jewelry at Monet.com, when I first told you about it, to the extent that you don't like the jewelry anymore, you could sell it and the company will give you more than you paid for it you'd actually make a profit. I mean, think about that. How many items can you buy retail and pay full retail, right, to buy an item, use it, wear it for two or three years, and then return it to the seller and actually get back more than you paid, right? I mean, when could you do that? Mene Jewelry is about the only merchandise where you could do that. And of course, you don't have to sell it back to the company. You could try, you can go on eBay or something and sell it yourself and get the entire design premium and make an even bigger profit. I bet people are reselling it because people know what it is. If you have the, the you can authenticate what you bought. 
uh, it has the real gold. Uh, when you sell it back to Monet, they're just giving you the value of the gold. But when you buy it, you have to pay the design fee for the jewelry. Uh, but the price has gone up by more than that design fee. So even the melt value of the gold today is worth more than what people paid uh, to buy the jewelry when I first started talking about it. So it's a great way uh, to own some jewelry and some gold. Again, it's not the best way to buy gold. It's the best way to buy jewelry. The best way to buy gold is through shift gold. The best way to buy jewelry is through Monet, and you should buy some of both. And if you want to really take a risk to have bigger upside, if you want to maybe make 10 or 20 times your money, buy some gold stocks, buy the right gold stocks because the wrong ones could lose you money. That's why I like my fund, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund EPGFX. Again, you can buy it directly from my website, europacificfunds.com. You can download a prospectus, you could read it, and if you can accept the risks, you could just invest directly uh, on my website, europacificfunds.com. You can also talk to the brokers at Europe Pacific Capital, or if you have an account at Schwab, Fidelity, E-Trade, which by the way, E-Trade is now getting bought by Morgan Stanley, another sign of a top in this bubble when you have uh, you know these firms gobbling each other up. Um, but you can buy my funds at these other discount brokerage houses, but you want to buy them now. You know, while the guys at CNBC are still dismissing the gold rally is no big deal. You know, while they're still encouraging their audience to buy Bitcoin fool's gold instead of real gold. Because if you wait for CNBC to be on board here, where they actually start recommending gold and gold stocks, and who knows, maybe they'll even have me on. Don't wait for me to be on CNBC to buy your gold because you better believe we'll be well over $2,000 an ounce before they, they have me on CNBC. Maybe it'll have to be $5,000 an ounce before they bother to invite me on. But don't wait for that. Just buy it before that happens. You, know, you don't want to be the last one of the party. You want to be relatively early. And by the way, if you're buying gold and gold stocks now, you're still early to the party. We're not even close to the end of this party. And while I'm on the subject of parties, I want to transition over to the party they had at the Paris Hotel last night in Las Vegas. Although I don't really know uh, if party is the best way to describe the Democratic uh, debate. It certainly was entertaining. In fact, it was the most entertaining of all the debates. In fact, I think the person who was probably entertained the most was Donald Trump. I think he really got a kick out of this debate because if you listen to my last podcast, I was warning on that podcast that I thought the debate would be very, very problematic for Michael Bloomberg. In fact, I thought he would have been better off to just skip the debate. I mean, after all, he was rising in the polls. He was in the number two spot, having never participated in a single debate. And that's because he was, you know, flooding the airwaves with his commercials. I mean, I see him every day here in Puerto Rico, you know, soy Mike Bloomberg, and he approves the message. I mean, constantly these Spanish language commercials for Bloomberg, no other candidate but Bloomberg is advertising. And so normally, you know, the reason that these presidential candidates wanna be in the debates is because it's free airtime. I mean, that's how you get exposure to the voters. That's how they know you're a candidate. They see you in the debate. So everybody wants to be in the debate because that's the way they can get in front of the voters. Well, Mike Bloomberg, he didn't need any of that. He was already in front of the, vo the voters. He was spending hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of his fortune uh, buying primetime ads. And so he didn't need to be on that debate stage. And you know, when the only thing the voters saw was professionally produced and scripted ads, you know, 
uh, featuring Bloomberg, right? They had a very, very favorable impression of him, right? The people in the Democratic Party, because they were pushing him as this great Democrat, right? The heir apparent to Barack Obama. Obama was in a lot of his commercials, right? Saying nice things about Bloomberg. Uh, and so that's all uh, anybody saw. But now all of a sudden you put Mike Bloomberg on the debate stage and he immediately got attacked. And other than Donald Trump, who obviously doesn't want to run against Bloomberg, and so he's happy to see him taken down a couple of pegs. In fact, if you uh, were looking on predictit.com, you could see that Michael Bloomberg's odds were going down right after the debate started. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. When I did this uh, podcast last time last week, Bernie Sanders was about 47 cents. Uh, and now he's 57 cents. So he's gone way up. The odds of Sanders winning have gone up. Bloomberg, who was about 33 cents, he's down to 19 cents. So he's now a bigger long shot. He's still ahead of Joe Biden, but Joe Biden's 12 cents. Uh, Buttigieg's nine cents. Warren is six cents. And Klobuchar is three cents. She's even behind Hillary Clinton, who's at five cents. I guess there are some people betting that she'll win in a brokered convention or or something. Uh, but other than Trump, the biggest winner was Bernie Sanders. And, you know, it's kind of ironic, too, because one of the main motivating factors for Bloomberg to get into the race, it's not just that he, um, he wants to beat Trump, because he clearly does, but he doesn't want Sanders to be the nominee. I mean, for one reason, because he doesn't think Sanders can win, right? So he thinks that that pretty much assures a Trump victory. But I actually think a bigger fear that Bloomberg has, but he doesn't want to admit it, is not that Sanders is the nominee and that he loses to Trump and then Trump gets another term, but that Sanders is the nominee and he actually beats Trump. Because I bet if you can get uh, you know behind closed doors and ask Mike Bloomberg, hey, Mike, if you could pick the next president, but your choices were only Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, He'd pick Trump. There's no way he wants a socialist, a communist, right, to be the president of the United States. As much as he dislikes Trump, he dislikes Sanders more. Of course, he can't say that. He can't admit that running uh, in the Democratic primary. So he has to pretend that he would prefer Sanders, but he doesn't. But ironically, by being up on that debate stage and drawing fire, that otherwise would have been aimed at Sanders, I think he's actually making it easier for Sanders to get the Democratic nomination. Because right now, the Sanders support is rock solid. He's not losing anybody, right? Nobody who was thinking of voting for Bernie is now going to vote for Bloomberg. The only people who Bloomberg is taking votes away from are Sanders' opponents, whether it's Klobuchar, whether it's Buttigieg, whether it's Biden, that is where uh, the votes are, are coming from that are going to Bloomberg. So he is simply allowing Sanders to strengthen his advantage. And so his presence in the race, if all the other candidates don't drop out, which it doesn't seem like they want to do, they're in this thing, uh, they are simply ensuring uh, that the race goes to Sanders. But the markets are still happy about that because they still think Sanders doesn't have a chance. Well, Sanders has a much bigger chance uh, than the markets or anybody else uh, expects. But I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the box that 
Bloomberg was in because this is exactly what I said was going to happen uh, on the last podcast because Bloomberg has a long history of saying sensible things, which pretty much, you know, makes him an outlier as a Democrat. And all those sensible things that he said in the past are now coming back to bite him like his opposition to the minimum wage. I mean, that's sacrilege in the Democratic Party. How could you be opposed to the minimum wage? Well, he's a businessman and he understands the negative aspects of the minimum wage. Most uh, Democrats have never been businessmen. They don't know anything about it, right? They're just uh, you know trying to say things that sound good. But Bloomberg was not in that position. And of course, as a businessman, Right, number one, he's very successful. He's made $60 billion, one of the richest men in the world. And he was being attacked for that. Right? One of the things that they said, uh, they said, is it fair? Should you really have all this money? I mean, why should you have so much more money than somebody else? And you know, he kind of fell into the trap of saying, well, sure, it's fair. I worked hard for my money. That is the wrong answer. You're just going to piss off the poor people when you claim that you worked hard for your money because they work hard too. They just don't get as much money. It's not about how hard the work is. There are other factors that come into play beyond how hard you work, right? I mean, yes, if, you, if you're if you working digging ditches all day, that's hard work, right? If you're in the sun and you're digging, right? You're coming home, you got calluses on your hand, right? You're exhausted from a hard day of manual labor. That's hard work but it doesn't pay a lot because pretty much anybody could do it if they're willing to do it. It doesn't require a lot of intelligence. It doesn't require a lot of training. So all of that goes into the amount of money you're able to make, right? Because not everybody can do what Mike Bloomberg can do, right? He has some talent. He has some skills. He has some intelligence uh, that when combined with hard work, and I'm sure Mike worked very, very hard and worked very, very long hours uh, when he was launching his business. But just hard work isn't enough, right? You, you got to have some intelligence and some skill to uh, convert that hard work into a higher return. And to the extent that you possess those other skills and that other intelligence, well, you're able to earn more money. I mean, why should we begrudge him that any more than, you know, there are basketball players. How hard do professional basketball players work? Look how much money they get paid. I mean, other people work hard too. They don't make nearly as much money as an NBA player. And the reason is, you know, because not that many people can perform at that level, you can't play basketball. Now, sure, usually you gotta be really tall. Not that many people are tall enough to, to play in the NBA, but then height is not the only thing. You have to be really skilled at basketball. You have to spend a lot of time practicing. Uh, and so if you do all those things, you can make more money. But even more important than simply saying that, you know, yes, you worked hard, but you had the smarts and you had the skills and the training. What Bloomberg needed to point out if he could have done it in, in, in a debate, which is difficult because it's a democratic debate and your, your, your audience is basically a bunch of idiots. So they're probably not going to understand this. But the reason that Bloomberg deserves to make a lot more money, right, than his employees is because he took a risk that his employees did not, right? Because I think it was Sanders or it was Warren when he talked about the fact that he worked hard to create the wealth they said, well, it wasn't you working by yourself. Your employees, they worked hard too. They deserve a share of that wealth, right? 
That's what they said, and they want to take it away. In fact, these guys would want to basically confiscate some of Bloomberg's wealth and, and give it to his employees, right? As if the employees didn't benefit. The, the employees of Bloomberg, who of course are working there voluntarily, right? When somebody accepts a job at Bloomberg, it's because that was the best offer they got. If they could get a better job someplace else, they would take it. He has 20,000 employees who thought Bloomberg was the best place to work. And that's why they're working there. You know, and in fact, he even pointed out he recently got an award as he was voted the second best company uh, to work for in, uh, in the United States. And I know it's a great place to work. When Bloomberg used to have me on, and I used to go down to, to Bloomberg a lot. I was on Bloomberg TV more than any other network. I used to love to go down there. I mean, there's all kinds of free food and free drinks, and it was a really nice environment, and everybody liked working there. I mean, if you could get a job at Bloomberg, that was like hitting the job lottery, right? So he was very, very good to his employees, and he had a lot of them. But the employees benefited from the wealth that Bloomberg created in that they got jobs and they got steady, dependable paychecks, but they didn't have to put any capital at risk. See, that is the return to the entrepreneur. The reason that businessmen can make a lot of money if they succeed is because they risk losing a lot of money if they fail. And I'm sure that when Bloomberg's business first started, he didn't make any money. He worked long hours and took home nothing. I mean, that's what happened to me. When I started my company, it took me a couple of years before I actually started taking any money home, but my employees were paid every week. I mean, that's what happens. When you start a business, you pay everybody first. You pay your employees, you pay your, your landlord. If you borrowed money, you pay interest to whoever you borrowed it from. Only if there's money left over does the owner get anything. And usually the owner puts in more hours than anybody else. See, employees don't wanna do that. They don't want to work and not get paid. They want to know they're going to get paid. They want to know that every Friday they're going to get a check, regardless of the short-term fortunes of the company. And they don't want to write a check. They don't want to put their capital at risk. They don't want to risk losing money if the, if the company doesn't work out. They just want the upside, right? So that's what he needed to point out, that he took the risk that his employees didn't take, and so he reaped the reward. And had he failed, he wouldn't have been billing his employees. He wouldn't have said, hey, I lost money, so give me your wages back. No, the employees make money whether the company makes money or not, right? That's the deal. And so most people want the security of a paycheck. They don't want to gamble on starting a business. So what Bloomberg should have said is, look, I started a company. I got 20,000 employees. I've benefited a lot of people and I got rewarded for creating a successful company. And if you want more successful companies to be created in the future, then you have to allow the people who create them and who take the risks to get the reward. If you want to steal that reward, if you want to punish people for being successful, well, then fewer people are going to be successful. Fewer people are going to start businesses and we're not going to have a vibrant economy. That's what these socialists don't understand. Then, of course, he was also attacked, in particular, uh, by Warren because uh, women have sued Bloomberg for uh, sexual harassment or discrimination, right? As if he's some kind of sexist, right? He's a misogynist and, you know, he's, and so he's anti-women and proof is that there are these lawsuits. Well, you know, one of the things, of course, that ties Bloomberg's hands in this is that he's running as a Democrat and he can't really tell the truth which is that, you know, people lie when they're shaking down their employers for money. A lot of these lawsuits 
uh, for sexual harassment or discrimination are lies. Disgruntled employees are lying to shake down their employers or former employers for money. And it works. They get money. Employers write checks all the time. Bloomberg employs 20,000 people. When you employ that many people, you're going to have your share of frivolous lawsuits. In fact, I would be willing to bet that as a you know, percentage of his employees, Bloomberg probably has fewer of these suits than, than normal, right? Uh, but he has some. Nobody's going to have none. That's part of the problems with trying to operate a business in America. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I advise people, if you're going to start a business, try to hire as few people as you can. Try to automate, try to outsource, because that's the best way to reduce uh, the risk of getting sued, right? Having a frivolous lawsuit. Now, that doesn't mean all the lawsuits are frivolous. There could be some that were legitimate. But I'm sure, as Bloomberg said, that the complaints were not against him personally. He's the owner of the company. So if one of his employees harasses another one of his employees, Bloomberg is the one that gets sued, even though he had nothing to do with it, right? Just because somebody that he employed said something to another person that he employed was offended by, he gets caught up in a lawsuit, right? Now, of course, she was making a big deal, Elizabeth Warren, of the fact that there's, you know, non-disclosures, which of course, nobody wants to disclose the details, especially when you're settling uh, as a business uh, decision knowing that you did nothing wrong and somebody is making a false allegation, one of the reasons you're paying up is to keep those false allegations a secret so you don't want them out there. And also, if you pay somebody money, you don't want other people to know how much you paid because that could inspire copycat false accusations. Oh, I want to get my payday, right? You paid off this person. How many other people are you going to pay off? So generally, you know, the, the people paying the money one of the things they're paying for is to keep the whole thing silent so they don't encourage more people to come out and ask for more money. And now they're making a big deal. Oh, why did you make these women sign uh, disclosure agreements? He would have been a fool not to. That doesn't mean uh, that he did anything wrong. He just wants to keep the fact that he had to basically pay a bribe to one person. He doesn't want other people who might be looking for their piece of the action uh, to find out how much this other person got. But, you know, they're making him out like he's an evil guy because he creates jobs, right? And, of course, since he's a Democrat, he can't say, well, these women are lying. Because remember, all women have to be believed. If somebody alleges something, then you must believe them. And so as a Democrat, he can't talk about the fact that these were lies, he had, you know, because that's sacrilegious again in the Democrat. I mean, you know, he wouldn't have to worry about this line of attack if he was debating Trump. Right? But in the Democratic primary, rather than the general election, this is a big, big problem for Mike Bloomberg. In fact, his entire record, you know, the stop and frisk stuff. And of course, now he's apologizing for everything he did. And, you know, he's saying that, look, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. It takes a big man to admit when you're wrong. You know, it would take a bigger man to say I wasn't wrong and just justify what you did. Explain why what you did was right and why you're not a racist and why you're not a, 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 a sexist. In fact, I hate it when you have people on the right now trying to label Bloomberg a racist and a sexist. He's, of course he's not. This is what Democrats do. They try to make everything seem racist and sexist when it's not. We just don't want to sink to that level. Even if you think, you know, what's good for the goose is good to the gander, I think you want to take the high road. And, you know, probably, 
the most interesting comment that Bloomberg made all day is when these guys were all talking about how he didn't earn his wealth and how the workers have a right uh, to their share of the profits and all this nonsense. I mean, Bloomberg actually came out and said, this entire conversation you're having is completely ridiculous. And all we're going to do is elect Donald Trump. We're not going to abandon capitalism. I mean, you guys are talking about communism. And he basically called them all out for how ridiculous the entire debate was. And he's 100% correct. It is ridiculous. It is a farce. And he knows it. Right. But he can't, you know, really call him out on it because he wants people that believe in this to, to vote for him. But where I disagree with Bloomberg is him thinking that the socialist policies that are being advocated guarantee a Trump victory, because I think Bloomberg is overestimating the intelligence of the American voter. I think a lot of them want socialism. A lot of them are going to vote for socialism. And a lot of people, blue collar people in these swing states who are being told this is as good as it gets, that Donald Trump has already succeeded in making America great again. And we have the greatest economy in the history of the world. And you're going to have people thinking, this is it. This is as good as it gets. This is the greatest economy ever. And I have more debt now than I did before Trump was elected. My cost of living has gone up, but my paycheck hasn't. Or I'm working a second job now. You know, maybe socialism isn't so bad. Let me give it a shot. But at some point, this reality is going to have to set in that not only the prospect of Bernie Sanders being the Democratic nominee, but the reality that he might just win. Now, I still personally think that Trump versus Sanders, as long as the economy doesn't implode, as long as the Fed can keep the bubble from deflating uh, through the November election, then I still would think the odds are that Trump gets a second term. But he's not a shoe in I mean, maybe he's 60%, 65% at best. But if the economy slips in a meaningful and noticeable way, if inflation, if the cost of living spikes, in a meaningful and noticeable way. You know, what's happening right now with the coronavirus, this is a stagflationary event. Both the, uh, the fact that the coronavirus is potentially reducing economic output, that factories are shutting down, that workers are being sent home, uh, that supply chains are becoming bottled because of uh, reductions in production to the extent that supply of goods and services is going down just as central banks are pouring more money into the economy. You have supply going down and demand going up. Uh, which is a recipe for disaster and higher prices. So we have an economic slowdown with rising consumer prices. We have stagflation, even worse than we would have had absent the coronavirus. All this stuff comes into play by November. And then I think the odds flip in the other direction. And I think that uh, Sanders has a better chance than, uh, of winning than Trump. But in the meantime, sometime between now and then, the markets are going to have to start to decline to discount the possibility that we have a socialist president. And if you have, want to have any idea just how scary that might be, if you thought things were bad before the socialists were in charge, just imagine how much worse they're going to be after. And by the way, Sanders was, is going to be inheriting a bubble. He's not inheriting a sound economy that he's going to wreck. He's going to inherit a bubble that was going to pop anyway. And he's just going to make the collapse after the pop that much worse. Thank you.